This is the Future of HR podcast, episode seven. When you're hiring, you know, early, early career, or actually at any level, we're really shifting our mindset to go from we're hiring a person to fill a role, like a very specific role with very specific skill sets, to we're hiring a person that where they will grow their career here. And that's a very different mindset. How can taking initiative accelerate your career? Why is experimenting the key to learning? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Humera Malik Shahid. Humera is Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, and also leads talent development at Intuit, which is a Fortune 500 company with over $14 billion in annual revenue and 14,000 employees across the globe. Intuit is consistently recognized in Fortune and Great Place to Work's 100 Best Companies to Work For list, and 2022 was ranked 11 on that list. In her current role, Humera is responsible for leading Intuit's diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, as well as development and learning enablement of all employees, managers, and executives. Prior to joining Intuit, Humera was leading engagement, learning, analytics, and performance in electronic arts. Humera is a data-driven executive who's passionate about building inclusive cultures and making a difference in our local communities. In our conversation today, Humera and I discuss why you should follow your passion and not be afraid to take risks, how to land your dream job in tech, why you should evaluate your personal and professional goals every year, and her advice for aspiring chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, and so much more. Humera, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about the future of HR. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about that with you as well. Let's just jump into it. You know, when I look at your no career, no pun intended, you... me, right? We're going to jump into it since I'm are, at Intuit. We are jumping into it at Intuit. I like that. Does that happen a lot? Is that an inside joke? Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> we are on the inside now on that one. Well, you started your career as a consultant for the Hay Group. And I'm interested to know what that experience taught you, how did that help prepare you for your next role, and even how you got into consulting in general. Yeah. Oh, that's a fun story, JP. I'm going to try to give you like the shorter version, maybe, because it's a long story. So I was one of those high school nerds that loved leadership. So I was like class president and on student council, and I was out in the community. And um, But I did a lot of work around leadership. And I was part of a not-for-profit organization that was about students leading in their communities and at their schools. And it was called the California Association of Student Councils. And it was a really big part of my youth and my kind of growth in high school. And then when I graduated from college, I had no idea that I could actually build a career doing the stuff that I used to love to do in high school. And when I found out, I was like, my mind was blown. Like, wait, I can like go and help people become better leaders. Like I can go and right. do team development. I had no idea. And so what better way to learn that than to join a consulting firm that did just this? 
and get a ton of experience in a variety of different industries, different kinds of projects. And that's, so that's how I fell into consulting, you know, which was why I did fall into it. I applied to many firms <laughs> and was lucky enough <laughs> to get selected by one of them. And that's, so that's why I was drawn to it. And fundamentally, that's what I loved about it was the wow. diversity of clients and projects, performance management, coaching, assessment, just everything that I get to do now, I feel like I learned my foundation as a consultant. So that's one of the reasons why when people say, should I try consulting? You know, it all goes back to if you want to get the most experience and most breath in the quickest way possible, I totally encourage consulting as a, as a first step in a career. It sounds like you were pretty purposeful in saying, you knew what mattered to you. You had that passion for leadership and you were thoughtful about how to find that. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us more about the experience working in Hay Group and how that experience has helped you today. I look back on those days very, uh, very fondly for a number of reasons. I was lucky enough to find Hay Group, which was a smaller consulting firm, which meant you got to you really did go out and meet with clients. Like if you sold the project, you got to work on the project. And I just think that's phenomenal because you build those skills very early on of, you know, kind of really being consultative in your in your mindset of really helping clients diagnose issues, really try to build solutions collaboratively. How do you bring in thinking from the outside into doing that? And that, I think I carry those big lessons into every job I've had since consulting. The ability to diagnose, right, to learn the business really quickly, prioritize kind of what actions or solutions you want to build and then building them is still what I do every day. But I feel like that foundation was built early on in, in consulting and my ability to like do that. And so I wouldn't replace it for anything. It was fantastic. That's great. I think that is exactly what you learn in consulting. And then you joined Electronic Arts. Yeah. All right. And you started there and you're promoted several times over your career. And I'm going to run through it because I think it's an impressive progression you've had there. And, and it, you went from senior manager to director, senior director, and then VP of a very fun title, learning engagement analytics and performance. I think LEAP is how you uh, use that. Let's talk about what you consider your secret to success and what led to that upward promotion. I'll share my story and you can see if you can pull out the secrets. I think you're probably probably better at that than I am. Um, one of the things that I've always done is I do follow the work that I love to do. So I am passionate. I feel very lucky in that, that I discovered that early on and I was able to build, build my career around that. When I left consulting, I had worked in so many industries. I worked in healthcare, in technology, in entertainment, in not-for-profit. And I really had oil and gas. Uh, financial services. So I really wanted to choose an industry that I was excited about. And I was young at the time. And so I thought, you know what, I want to work for something really culturally relevant. I want to work in a, you know, B2C business. I want to be directly connected to a, you know, a customer. Uh, and entertainment and video game just sounded like a really good time. And so I had a friend that connected me into electronic arts. And as I learned more about the business and the relevance to, you know, culture and youth, I just was like blown away at what was possible. And so I joined and I joined many times in my career. I have joined or taken a role that literally is a blank sheet of paper. And this was one of them. And I think that foundation consulting kind of gives you the belief that you can, you can address any challenge or problem because that's what you were doing as a consultant. So I came in and it was like, this is a challenge. You know, we want to build really strong leaders. I was working in the finance organization at the time and the CFO had come out of GE. So just a really long, robust history of what it meant to invest in people. And they're like, shape the role. And hmm. so I called it training by day because that was a language that we understood in gaming at the time. And I called it OD by night. We were really trying to drive, you know, organizational change and drive culture 
and all of those things. But that wasn't a language that we had, you know, back then. I mean, now, of course, they do. But that mm-hmm. was a long time ago. And, and that was what I did. And so you, you build out everything from like curriculum and you put yourself out there and you understand the big levers of the talent system, like performance management and succession planning. And then you think, OK, gosh, to develop leadership bench. And that whole cycle got me really excited. And so I started to really love talent systems and how each part of the system impacts an individual. And we get to, I get to work in an area that you have key inflection points in your, in your career. And I get to be part of that. Like my team gets to be part of that. My first promotion, you know, my, like if I'm getting rated or getting feedback, if I'm, you know, having this iconic learning experience, like I get to be a part of that. And I, I really love that. And it's really motivating. So that was part of that journey is that not being afraid, I think, to take a blank piece of paper and just build. EA was also a very forgiving company. Like if something didn't work, it was okay. You experimented, mm. you know, it was fine. And so we just go, you know what, that didn't work. So let's just learn what we need to and try again. And I love that. You were never trying to get to perfect. You were trying to get to what is good enough, like we think meets the needs to roll out and then we'll learn to make it better. And I've really appreciated that and carried that through every job. And so I think that passion for learning and, you know, kind of organization then led me to that first, that first big promo, which was to director. And that was really around the talent management piece. And this was new. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know, JP, you would know this. It was new. It was, it was new, new at that time. That time. Yeah, it was. A lot of companies yeah. were doing it. Yeah, and where they were really trying to put all these systems, you know, all these talents. I don't want to say it. I don't, have, I don't have your LinkedIn profile in front of me, but I'm thinking in my mind, it was early 2010 and a little bit before that. That's when you know, Mark Efron wrote One Page Talent Management. That's right. on the show. It's a plug, of course. Oh, Go back and listen to that episode. You will learn more about Mark on that episode than anyone else probably knows because it was a great conversation, but he's very, he opened up a little bit. But more yeah. importantly, I think that was really when people started to say, talent management's a real thing. It's a real thing. And yeah. there was chief learning officer, now there's chief talent officers, yep. and it started to kind of meld a little bit. But it, was, it wasn't really defined. No. So it sounds like you were defining that totally. in electronic arts. Yeah. And that goes back to exactly what I said earlier, which was this was yet another <laughs> blank sheet of paper. <laughs> it was like, we think we have these pieces, you know, like, do you think mm-hmm. you could like put this together? We have this thing called competencies, which feel like they're really important when you're thinking about assessing people or like getting them into new roles. And yeah. And then we've got this whole thing around performance management that went through three iterations while I was there. But I iterated all of them, right? Like, it's really fun to completely tear down what you built. It's actually really invigorating <laughs> and humbling, very humbling. To be like, that worked at that time. This no longer works. So we're just going to rip it down, even though you might have spent, you know, a long time building it. Yeah. And it sounds like you obviously delivered as you moved up. I'll try to summarize the secret of your success. I think you followed your passion. You loved what you were doing. Second, it sounds like you were able to take that blank sheet of paper and say, here's where I can add value. Here's how I can bring Humera and to the business, but also actually help the business. Yeah. The third, which I really loved, was the philosophy of let's get it good enough to get it out there, right? Now we have agile and rapid prototyping, but you're like, let's get it out. Let's try it. Let's move forward and let's learn from that. I think that was really important. And then the final secret to success, which I think is the hardest for people, is to actually say what I did back then doesn't work today. And it's same thing for our careers sometimes. It's hard for us to understand what worked for me the last five, 10 years may not work for me for the next five, 10 years, but you were doing that on projects you built, which is actually so hard because we get so much of like, that's our baby. Yeah. Like I designed that competency model. What, you don't like those words? What do you mean? Right. 
but the industry is moving, right? And our companies are moving and our talent is changing. And so you have to be really nimble. I learned this one from one of my colleagues a long time ago. And he said, you know, I have a lot of ideas, but they're just loosely held. I have a lot of ideas, a lot of passions, a lot of things I care about. But I try to keep my conviction around them pretty loosely held because there's always data that, that you can get that can change your perspective. And so you have to stay open to that. Uh, otherwise, you get stuck. And that's no, nobody wants to be stuck. You mentioned the, the talent is changing. Let's talk a little bit about that because I'm not going to say the two words that are very popular right now in HR. I think you know those two words. It starts with a Q and a Q. But the reality is we have millennials, we have Gen Z. And when you look at, especially let's talk in technology, the average tenure is right around two years. Yeah. Okay. And what you start to see, and there's been lots of articles around, hey, if you jump and leave different jobs, you're going to get 15, 20%. We've seen a lot of that quitting and the great resignation or yeah, reshuffling, whatever you want to say. So yeah. if the average 10 years in technology is only about two years, what do you say to people who will say, well, it just doesn't pay to stay with one company. Yeah. Why would I do that? Yeah. I love that question. And I'm a long tenure kind of person. And I, and so I'll just caveat it with that, right? And the reason, I think one of the biggest reasons for me is that because I spent seven years in consulting, jumping from client to client and getting all that diversity, I think I was just inclined, like hungry for what happens when you stay in an organization and you try to see the work that you've done and what the impact is, right? And what the outcome is. And so I think I just kind of got hooked on that. <laughs> and I ended up staying for a long time in electronic arts. And then and I went into it with very much the same mindset. I think it comes down to JP, like, um, what is it that you're looking for? And I do think that that changes at different points in your career. I really do. I think sometimes it's, do I care about the work? You know, and I may find in two years, I thought I loved it. And I really don't. Earlier in your career, you want to get to the next level. You want to get promoted. And I totally get that. And I was just talking, though, to a direct report this morning that each one of those decisions, though, comes at a cost. And so at certain points in my life, it's been about me doing exactly what I love and the exact timetable that I want to do it at and getting the right promotions. And other times it's been like, oh, now I have a family, you know, and I've chosen to have a kid and my priorities are shifting a little bit. And then there was the pandemic that hit. And what we think about is that the things that are important to me shift. And so at that time, right, I wanted a company that was going to be supportive, flexible. I was homeschooling my kids. My husband was an essential worker. And all of those things meant that what I needed from a work environment were really different than what I might have wanted two years ago. And one of the things that I do, and I still do this at this point, is I do it once a year. For other people, it might be more often, is I take a step back and I ask myself, what's most important to me in, in my life? I want to have I want to have challenging work. I want to be in a company that values my contribution. I want to be able to spend time with my family. There's just the criteria that I have. And then I ask myself, am I getting those today? Um, and if I'm not, I have to ask myself, can I get it in balance, you know, in the environment that I'm in? Or if I can't get it, then maybe it's time for me to go somewhere else. And I think having that honest evaluation, I think, does help people realize I can get what I want here. And maybe I just need a different role. So I should try a mobility move, right? Or I should do something different because I really like the culture or I really like the people. I really like the product. For Intuit, I'm super driven by the mission, right? To power prosperity for all. So that mission is really powerful to me. So those are the things I think that we all as people have to look for if we're lucky enough. And I'm speaking from a place of privilege, right? Like I'm lucky to be able to make these decisions and have these choices, but that's really valuable. And I found that's helped me out yeah. from very early in my career when I, whenever I make that list and evaluate it, I'm able to make a good decision. That's a great list and way to think about it. And it sounds like you're also saying, if you're thinking about leaving, because maybe things have changed for you, 
there also may be something still internal that you should try, right? Because a lot of times you can still grow internally, but that is a place of privilege. In some companies, there isn't another place to go where you get that experience, right? Let's continue to talk more about technology because I think it's a fascinating place to be. We both worked in tech and breaking into tech can be very challenging. So what's your advice for next generation HR leaders who want to break into technology? How do you market yourself if you're not from a sexy, cool industry like technology? Well, okay. So every industry is sexy and cool in its own way. (laughs) They're just just different levels of, you know, of coolness. I happen to be very lucky. Although when I left to electronic guards, people were like, tax? You're going to go work for a tax firm? I'm like, oh, it's so much more than that. So the... The number one thing I think for HR professionals today, and HR has changed, you know this, JP, right? Like, the, I mean, we've both been in this field for a long time, and it's been really fun to watch it evolve and to get to be a part of that evolution. One of the areas that most tech firms lead with, and I'm sure other firms do too, though, is you have to be data-driven in your approach. And that, I think, is one of the biggest changes that's come into the HR function in the last, I would say, five to 10 years, is how do you, that's why HR analytics teams have cropped up everywhere. How do you lead with data? We have so much information about our employees, right? Everything from like, you know, their their benefits to the sentiment surveys that we do to where they live. We have so much information and it's about using that data to really personalize their their experiences. And so if you're data-driven, I think in tech, that's going to be a really big, a big advantage. The second Mm -hmm. thing, and I think you know this too, because you've worked in tech, is tech moves fast. It moves really fast. And that's something you have to be really comfortable with, that things are going to move at at like lightning speed because technology moves at lightning speed. I mean, that's the whole point. That's why the industry moves fast is because that's just that's the rate that the technology is moving. And so that, I think, also has to translate to all of the functions that then support the core kind of products and services, which is you have to keep up with that. And I think people that are able to show I'm willing to experiment I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to move fast. And you have examples of that are the things I, that I think people are looking for when you're trying to get recruited into tech. And the last thing is you got you to gotta have passion for technology. It really does make a difference. And again, some like B2B, like I have, I have really learned this about myself. I really want to work for a company that's direct. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that because we Intuit just acquired MailChimp and their business. Let's say MailChimp. Pretty cool. That's not totally. It's pretty cool. And so, and yeah. it's, and what I love about MailChimp is it's small business, right? It's not enterprise to enterprise, right. right? It's small B2B, but you do have to think about that aspect of like, is, is this technology that I'm looking at? Is it enterprise software? Is it direct to consumer? Is it small business? And, and how, can I get excited about what it is that we're all about and what does it unlock? And so I think that those were kind of three big things that tech companies or tech organizations tend to look for when they're hiring. Very helpful. And let's take that even a step further and think about how you assess that early career talent. And so if you're in that interview process and you're interviewing, how do you assess them? What are you looking for? How do you pull those things out you just talked yeah. about in that interview? So that's such a great that's such a great question. It's something we're grappling with at Intuit. And so I'm going to share something that we really do, we do believe. When you're hiring, you know, early, early career or even mid-career, actually at any level, we're really shifting our mindset to go from we're hiring a person to fill a role like a very specific role with very specific skill sets to we're hiring a person that where they will grow their career here. And that's a very different mindset. This is the job that you're applying for now, but we want to have a dialogue about where you want to go and acknowledge that they change. It want to help you on that journey. And so that's a big mindset shift. Yeah. So you're really trying to assess the potential of that person to grow in the future, which is challenging because measuring potential is not, not easy. Fine. Yeah. 
What are some of the things that you're trying to pull out to assess that potential and the values of that? It's individual? like universal pieces, right? Like talk to me how you solve problems. How do you think about it? It's what are we looking for there? Intuit's a very, a company very focused on customers, right? And so we want to put the customer at the center of it. We're focused on design thinking. And so you're just looking for what are the, how does somebody do some of these big things? We talk about, we do a lot of our work through collaboration. Give us examples of how you collaborate with others or how tell us about a time where you've had to design a solution, whether that's a technical solution or something else. And so it's really trying to get at how does this person work? And is this somebody that will, has a curiosity, you know, and an openness to how they think through these very specific examples. So it's still, it's objective in the example that we're using. So we're very thoughtful about diversity and bias as well. So there is mm-hmm. always a place for like that you've got a code, you know, because that's what we need. But it's also adding this additional piece on, which is, do, do you have a desire to learn? And do you have desire to grow? And some of those things are just how do you keep up with what's happening in the industry? That's often something we also look at is are people displaying that curiosity? A lot of good suggestions on how to prepare for those interviews and really showcase those universal, but also somewhat specific mm-hmm. talents that people need to continue to develop and that you know can stay with them for their entire career. And prep tip, right? Is if that getting, different? If you're having a recruiter... Yeah. You should definitely ask them, right? Like, what are the values of the organization, right? What makes somebody successful here? Those are all things that you're kind of probably going to hear about and want to lean into as you go through the interview process, because that means that those are the things that they care about, the organization cares about. Well, I love the pro tip. What about the pro don'ts? So what are interview tips do you have for people when like, do not do this, <laughs> do not show up and do this in our interview it will not help you. Yeah, that's such a good question, JP. Because I talked about how much we value experimentation, innovation. It's like, do not assume you have the answers. And just because you've done it before in another in another environment, doesn't mean you're going to have to adopt your, a lot of your how potentially to get it done in this environment. And so just also, confidence is great, but combine it with humility and the willingness to learn, I think makes a huge difference when you're, in, when you're interviewing somebody. You do want confidence, don't get me wrong. That's really important, but it's also a dose of humility goes a long way. Is it different for you when you start to evaluate your internal team in terms of that early career talent? They're a little bit more of a known quantity, right? But what in your mind helps someone to stand out early in their career and say, hmm, we should think about that person for this role? So here's the first thing I'm going to offer that served me really well. And this is Jamira's opinion is show initiative. You really like show initiative. It's that what I mean by that is, there's always going to be the things that you're asked to do, right, in your job. But if you're raising your hand to do something else, you're raising your hand to volunteer on a project, you're looking for to go above and beyond, like you delivered what you were supposed to deliver, but then you discovered in that process, well, wow, like, you know what, if we just did this or experimented with this, you know, this might give us, we might learn something, right? Or it might give us that much more success. That I see be 100 times successful. I always say, even to my team, that if you see a gap, run for it and try to close that gap in the organization. And I think that makes people stand out all the time. It's like their willingness to go and say, this is not working or I see a gap here and I'm willing to close it. It could be on any variety of things, but anytime you see a gap, like raise it and then volunteer to go after it. I think people really pay attention to folks that are not just focused on them and their role in their work, but making the team better. Taking initiative is so important, but I think the last point you made there, it's thinking about the whole organization. Right, it's seeing a bigger picture and figuring out, hey, this is a problem. I want to solve it, and then actually taking the initiative to solve it. Because at, at the end of the day, if you want to go further in your career, you have to show leadership, and leadership is solving problems that maybe no one asks exactly. you to solve. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, throughout your career, you have definitely been a leader, have solved problems that no one's asked (laughs) you to solve. And that led you to a recent, very big and exciting promotion to be Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer for Intuit. So congratulations. Thank you. That's a mouthful, I know, but it's uh, very exciting. It is a mouthful. And you're still, I think, retained talent management as well. So you've got, it's actually even a longer title. But the diversity, equity, and inclusion is the promotion. And so take us back to the moment when you found out that you were getting this promotion. How did you feel and why? I would say anytime I get any big promotion, my first reaction is, oh no, like, what am I, can I do this? It's always my first reaction. Like, I don't want to fail. And that's always my first reaction. And then of course I'm like, no, you know, I just the role that I want, that I wanted. And, and then of course the excitement rushes in, you know, pretty quickly. It's just the excitement of the opportunity to do something new, to take on a really complex challenge for the organization. That's what gets me excited is the fact that like nobody's cracked the nut on, you know, what does it mean to be a diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment? And what does it mean within the context of your organization. And so I think there are lots of best practices out there and lots of things that people are doing. And what I love about DEI is the external community that exists to like learn from. It's a very, it's a very open and collaborative community. Like we are definitely, there's no competition going on in DEI. We're all trying to figure it out. And I love that speaks to like who I am, you know, as a person and and the work that I like to do. And so I think that my second reaction always is I'm super excited. And then of course the third one is let's get to work. (laughs) Like Let's get started. And you start a lot by listening, right? You got to listen and learn and and not jump too fast to conclusions. Like I said, keeping that curiosity, but also having confidence that you can drive change. And that's really what motivates me is that I'm here to drive change. any role that I've been in, any organization, that's what I'm here is to drive change to ultimately have a positive impact upon employees that make up this amazing company. Because without employees, there is no organization and there's no organization without employees. Talk a little bit more why this role yeah. is so important to you. Why is diversity, equity, and inclusion important to you as a mission? A yeah. And so I grew up, this goes back to like how we grew up, right? A lot of our experiences are grounded in our life experiences. And so my parents are immigrants to the United States. They came for the American dream, which is just to be able to create a better life for their for their children. And they were able to do that. And it's when I look around and see all the opportunities that I've been given and what I've been able to do, there's definitely a source of pride. But I also recognize that's not the case for everyone. And it is hard. We all are living, you know, very different lives, you know, even though we live in the same country or in the same state. And DEI, I feel like is my opportunity to do something that's bigger than the organization that I'm in. And that is at this stage of my career, that's really important to me. And so I absolutely love working into it. And I believe in what we do as an organization and what we could do in the space of, of diversity, equity, inclusion. But I also believe anything we do, because so much of that work is also with our customers and with the community, is something that's going to have a much broader impact. And that really, really motivates me. And that's something that I would I want to have as part of my own legacy, is that I really helped the community, you know, in which and the broader community, frankly, you know, not only where our offices are and where we work, but just the broader diverse community across the country. And, you know, many parts we're looking at underrepresentation around the world to give people opportunity. So it is it is personal and that and it's really motivating to see. And you hear stories, right? JP, this is this role is very hard. Because you do spend time, mm-hmm. you spend time, you know, with talking about the brand, but you also then spend time listening to people's individual hardships and you listen to like their experiences and you're, you get motivated to go, there is a better way, you know, and how can I be part of the solution versus perpetuating the problem? Appreciate you sharing that and being a little more open about why it matters to you so much. You know, it, it is a new field, right? Becoming chief diversity, equity, inclusion officers. Some report to the CEO, some do not, right? And I guess what I'm thinking about for you, for people who are aspiring chief diversity, equity, inclusion officers, 
what advice do you have for them? What skills do you think they need to prepare for the role? How do you even get yeah. that job? Yeah. Right. I agree that it's a newer, it's a newer field. We're just starting to see uh, classes come up in this. Like there's a, you know, there's a course at Cornell that's really, that a lot of my team actually has taken that's really focused on getting a DEI certification. You're starting to see it now in undergrad programs and as part of graduate programs. That wasn't the case, right? When I started working, like that was not an option. I think that's wonderful, right? Because I think it's giving, it's giving a platform for that this is real work. You know, there's a, there's a craft and expertise that's there. And then, and that there are roles and jobs, you know, in, in this field that could take advantage of that background. I th- there's a lot of ways you can get to DEI work. One of the things that I found by the most often is people actually have evidence of what they've done to drive their diversity within their team or within their organization. And they usually find themselves in DEI because it's sparked a passion in them. But so even on my current team, we've got people that have HR backgrounds. We have people that have customer success backgrounds. They kind of grew up in customer success. We have people that grew up in, even in our accounting, you know, and they're, they found their way here because this is something that they believe in deeply. And so and I think that's great. I think any path that leads you to do DEI work is, is your path. I think when you get closer and closer to that, though, you, we do have to recognize that there is a skill set that goes with it. And that then comes down to what the remit is of DEI in your organization. And that is different. And so at Intuit, right, my team is responsible for what we would call the employee pillar of our strategy. There's an employee pillar, a customer pillar, and a communities pillar. And we have different, like the business drives a lot of the customer pillar and our corporate responsibility drives a lot of our community pillar. But yeah, we're all tightly integrated because as the chief diversity equity inclusion officer, I feel responsible and a steward of all, if that makes sense. My mm-hmm. team drives most of the work in the employee pillar. And so, and so then if that's you know, how it's constructed in your organization, you have to think about how it's constructed in your organization, then you're going to need a lot of those people skills, right? Because that's where the focus is. If you're leading DEI where it's like, oh no, we're focused on all the customer pieces and that's the skills you're going to need. And so part of this is navigating what the focus is going to be. And then what are the skills that I need? and, and Interestingly enough, but to be part of DEI, you actually have to have a diverse set of skills. <laughs> That's actually the funniest part about it, but it depends on where it sits in the organization. But I think that the underlying behaviors is you have to be really open to, to, to learning about people's experiences and what DEI means for the organization. And then the biggest thing, again, I'll say this that I said earlier is it is a data-driven discipline as well. Like the data tells the story. And so a lot of people will lean into like, well, I'm well-intended. You know, and I don't operate with bias, for example. And of course not, right? Like, and a lot of bias is unconscious in the workplace. We're not assuming you're coming in with any, anything other than great intent. But then when you start to show, you know, sentiment of employees that are like maybe of a certain gender or of a certain race or ethnicity, like their sentiment, like their employee survey data compared to other groups, you start to say, oh, this is a different experience. You look at other data, like maybe attrition. And you start to see, gosh, we're losing people faster, you know, in these, in these ethnic groups or women in tech than we are other groups. What are the reasons behind that? Are they the same for everyone? And I think that you do have to use data to be your guide. And the more that you can show an ability to do that and an interest and a hunger to want to use that versus, I think this is important. I'm passionate about it, which is great, but you got to back it up because in order to drive change, it has to be grounded in something more than an opinion. So, so that's what I would say that you really want to focus on those skills, your data skills. There is a knowledge base that definitely exists and you have to have that. And then you need to add on some of the skills that may be applicable across just HR yeah. today, right? And it's, you know, the business piece, but just the data analytics. How do you tell a story? How do you get the business behind this, right? So they understand. Because we're all fighting for mm-hmm. attention, 
we're fighting for attention at work for our projects, budget, quite the budget. budgets and yeah, mindshare, sure. right? And yeah, so you've got to really have a story. But the other thing I think that you said was really brilliant and insightful is that this role, maybe more than any other role in HR, really does yeah. vary by the organization. Yeah. The variability is very high. And so maybe now we're in 2022. 10 years from now, we'll be talking and it will be kind of like town management was a lot more defined. And we're learning. And I love that point, JP, because the other thing I would say is that you're a pretty big coach too. You're working through some, you know, challenging situations that people are experiencing, right? Or their their voices want to be heard. You're working through helping your employees go through and navigate uh, what's happening externally. That hits the DEI team first, right? When Roe v. Wade was overturned. That had a huge impact, right, for people. Not everyone, but it definitely did. So you have to balance that, right? How do we have these conversations in the workplace when there's unfortunately a violent act that occurs, right? A mass shooting, if it's, and especially if it's race-based, right? What are the conversations that we want to have internally? People don't compartmentalize, right? And the pandemic actually accelerated that, right? Because we, you all came into our homes. And so our life became, you know, very visible to others. And so now you don't just shut that off. I actually think it's a great thing. What happens in the world does impact people at work. And to say it doesn't, I, I think is just a fallacy. I think it absolutely impacts and to create space for that. So there's a lot of coaching that's involved in the role as well with individuals or with managers or with leadership teams. And I spend a lot of my time doing that. And then the other piece, which is interesting, is depending on the organization, you may be in a spokesperson role for the company. And so you may be asked to speak, whether it's at a, at a conference or a, you know, a meeting or maybe like in the press, that is something that you also you have to think about and hone. And that's a skill you have to build as well which is how do I do that, right? How do I get my point across? How do I do interviews for external and internal individuals? You know, how do I do that well? I'm still working on that yeah, skill, as you can tell. You know, <laughs> you're very good at it, Himera. I would say, you know what, also as we're talking about this, that it is a really, it's a really tough job. There's a lot being put on people's shoulders. And I think it's be easy to internalize what you're seeing or hearing. Right. I mean, if you were asking our diversity, equity, inclusion officers to be the face of the company, sometimes they become the face of something that's happened externally, whether it's positive or negative, or they're hearing the stories. And I know it can be a very demanding, emotionally job. I just yeah. want to acknowledge that for people who, who are listening, who are in the DEI space. We appreciate that because it is an emotionally demanding job. It is. It is. Yet that those are also the pieces that give you the most, the most energy, the most fight you know, that it's important work. One of my colleagues and I are head of racial equity and I often will talk when something like really big happens and we'll just say, we need a moment. And you just kind of have to step away and take a walk around the block um, and take that moment because it, it can get really heavy. And in order for you to be present, you know, and be your best self, like sometimes you got to step away. And we do that and we support each yeah. other in that and just go take your moment. And if your moment is a moment, like a minute, if your moment is a day, you got to take it because in order for you to show up and be supportive, you have to take care of yourself. And that is something we definitely talk a lot about in the DEI space when it comes to wellness. It's really important. So Himera, last question for you. What is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I would say transformation. I really believe that this function, we talked about this earlier, right? HR is forever evolving, which is actually what makes it just a fascinating place to work. And it's, we're in the business of people, but I think our people, we're, we are, the function is transforming because the new workforce, the idea of a gig economy or the gig worker, this idea of hybrid or remote work, all of these things are impacting who we are and how we do our, our jobs and what people expect from an employer. And I think HR is going to be the forefront of leading that, leading that change. 
because I think it is changing. And so that's what gets me really excited is, and I also think we have a chance to transform not only the company that we work in, but just the definition of work overall. So I would leave it at that. Transformation. Humera, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. It was Thanks a blast. so much, JP. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Humera for sharing her career journey and her insights on how to break into tech. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Alan Church, former SVP, Global Talent Management at PepsiCo. And in our conversation, Alan and I will discuss the three types of potential, why they matter and when to use them, PepsiCo's Great Five leadership model and how it applies at different stages of your career, and why communicating potential reigns will increase, not decrease, employee engagement. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.